Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with an advocate for the youth and someone who has devoted his career to the well being of others. In senior leadership roles and philanthropic groups such as the Boys and Girls Clubs of America and the National 4 H Council, he has led with courage, creativity, compassion, and vulnerability. And he has raised hundreds of millions of dollars to change lives and bring out the best in others. Please welcome today's guest, the president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, Artis Stevens. Artis, welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Joe, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you. And it's great to see you again. You are the president and CEO of Big Brothers and Big Sisters, really an important organization. I mentioned the last time you and I spoke that I had a chance to be a big brother when I was a senior at the University of Michigan. It was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had. You're doing phenomenal work, and we definitely want to talk about that and your leadership and your experiences. Let's start a little with what led you to be who you are today. You know, Joe, I'm a true believer in purpose. I'm a true believer in that your path is sort of laid out for you and you have to walk that path. My dad was a preacher. My granddad was a preacher. And when I was young, I grew up in a large family and my mom and dad used to always say, hey, we didn't have a lot of means, but we were rich in relationships. And that for me meant all the things in the world because it was about the engagement of family. It was about the engagement of community. But I always remember because when I was growing up, being the youngest in a large family, all of my siblings had musical talent, except for me, right? And growing up in the church, that was always sort of a thing, to have that type of talent and to sort of be in the front. I'll never forget one day that I gave a Sunday school lesson in church, and then all of a sudden I got to stand in ovation. And the moral to the story was that essentially everyone then looked at me and said, hey, you're not the one with the musical talent, you're going to be the next preacher. So I remember going to my dad, I was seven years old at the time, and I shared with my dad, I said, everyone's saying I'm going to be a preacher just like you. I said, is that true? And I'll never forget what my dad told me. He said, everyone has their ministry in this world. You have to find yours. And those words stuck with me. And I always remember why those words stuck with me, because at the time I was setting this expectation, even at seven years old, that I had to be something that was already cast for me, right? In this sense, it was generational. In a lot of ways, as I was growing up, it became even in my community, that this was the block of my community. And this is the expectation that I have. And it was through that type of experience. It was through the coaching of my dad, of my mom, to this greater village that I had in my community of people pushing me along where I was able to start to break through barriers, barriers first that I had in my own mind. And those barriers got me to a place where, you know, I was the first in my family to go to college and to graduate from college. You know, I went to University of Georgia. Go dogs, by the way, for any of your listeners out there who are Bulldogs. Artists, you were recruited to play football at the University of Georgia, <laughs> but you never got to play. What happened? I was one of those star athletes in high school that I trained and worked hard to perfect my craft in playing football. I'll never forget. <laughs> 
in my junior year of high school, I was being recruited. Of course, what was on the top of my list was playing ball at University of Georgia. And I'll never forget in my junior year at high school game, I was taking a tough sweep and thought I was about to score a touchdown. And I got hit on the top and hit on the bottom. And then all I heard was a, a sound. And that wasn't a good sound. And that sound was a really devastating injury to my leg. I remember, Joe, that moment because it was what happened after that, right? It was getting into a point of mild depression, hearing the doctors tell me that it's not going to be the same, right? We didn't have the same type of technology and treatment that we do have now, but it wasn't going to be the same. I'll never be able to push off on it the way I did before. And it was my dreams that I thought was sort of going in smoke at the time. And I remember going into that mild state of depression and I was at my lowest. And it was this village, village of people, right? That community that surrounded me, that got me proverbially and literally on my feet again, right? It was the message that you would work just as hard, right? You've worked so hard in terms of playing football, determination, being on task, the drive. Like you got to apply those same skills to still achieving what you want to achieve in a different way. And it made me work just as hard academically as I worked on the field. And I still ended up going to University of Georgia. It just wasn't to play football. It was to go academically. And I'll tell you, when I went to the University of Georgia, it was this moment of accomplishment that I got there in the way that I did, because it helped to affect my life and the people that I met and the community that I met. But I always knew that I had to work incredibly hard to get to where I was and that the idea of achieving my dream was still achieving my dream. It was just achieving it in a different way, right? Sometimes we get to our point in life, but the journey that we get there just may end up being different than what we expected, but we still arrive at the point. It's hard though, isn't it, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. had in your mind this dream and you saw that kind of going away and that happens to us all the time, right? We have something yeah. we really want. How did you stay positive or what advice do you have to people who are facing that kind of situation to stay positive? I'm sort of of the belief that Sometimes you got to let yourself soak a little bit to get yourself up, right? I didn't act as like it didn't happen, right? And just, oh, well, now it's on to the next thing, right? Because we're all human and we're not perfect. And it was that sense of not being perfect that I needed the moment to essentially say, I'm not okay. This is not good. I felt like everything that I've worked for for years has now gone away. And I needed that moment to sort of just be hurt, <laughs> be angry go through my emotions, be frustrated. I went through all of those types of things, but it helped me to get it out. Now, the key was I couldn't stay in that pit, right? I had to find a way to get myself out of that pit. And for me, there was a couple of things that were really important. That was that community that I talked to you about. I needed other people, right? I had to connect because I had isolated myself. So I had to connect with other people to bring myself out of it. But the other thing was looking at other people who had actually accomplished some of the same things, right? who, whether it was a, a, a person that I admired in my family or my community, whether it was someone from afar, you know, that I looked at, right? And I would use this example, someone that everyone knows, even though it's a sports athlete, but I always remember the story of Michael Jordan when they always talked about, you know, he was cut from his high school basketball team or all the times he talked about where he failed and he missed. That's the story of most of our lives. For me, it was things like that that gave me inspiration to say, I can still follow what I want to follow in my own way. What's my thing that I'm going to attack now? And that's what it became. I had to redirect what it became for me. So then it became, 
this thing of getting to college. And I had to attack it like I was attacking someone on the football field. But my play call just became different. My play call became, oh, this is what I got to do to get my tasks done. Or this is what I got to do in terms of homework. This is what I got to do to sort of make the score and make the grade, right? But that same mentality, that same burning intensity that I had, it was redirecting that and finding my wins and finding the joy that I needed to get out of that so that I could win and be successful in different ways. I think we all have the thing inside us. We think sometimes that it's always based upon something external. Most of the time, it's something internal that drives us. And we got to find the thing that's external that allows for that internal thing to come out. But it doesn't have to just be one thing. Well, that's right. And if we can redirect that, you know, to something else, to something more positive. I mean, going to Georgia, you had one path that you had there. It was playing football, right? And then mm-hmm. when that went away, you said, well, I'm going to find another way. I'm going to do it. And I think that often in life, especially right now, especially you look at the world and all the challenges in the world, we need to be resilient. We need to be able to dig deep, rely on other people, have role models, like you said, and just kind of keep moving forward. Yeah, that's so true. And that took me to a place where I was able, my first job, I thought I was going to law school. My first job out of college was actually working in public housing. And what's so unique about that is that it was the public housing community that I played in when I was a kid. And that experience helped me to come back home to transform that community. But it was from those same conversations I had with my dad about following my own ministry, following my own purpose, that helped to guide me along that path and along that journey. And that journey took me to the next journey, to working in the youth development space for more than 25 years, to getting to the point in my life where I felt I was on this path and here was the box that I was working in another organization and here was the box. And I was saying, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then everyone went through it, right? Pandemic hit, social injustice starts to elevate to a high level and a high level consciousness in this country. And for me, it was a name. It was Ahmad Aubrey. It was when Ahmad Aubrey was murdered in Brunswick, Georgia, that it all came full circle for me. Because, Joe, I'm from Brunswick, Georgia, right? And when Ahmad was murdered, it wasn't simply about a Black man getting murdered on the street. That was, of course, part of it and part of the national dialogue and the narrative that we know have been connected in some way or form in our country for a number of years. This was personal because I knew people in his family. Because the street he was murdered on, I played on as I was a kid. And I walked on many times when I was a kid. And for me, it didn't make me question if I was following the right ministry. It made me question if I was doing enough. And it wasn't that long until this opportunity with Big Brothers Big Sisters came along. And when I looked at the opportunity, it was like looking in the mirror. I saw myself. I saw myself in the journey. I saw myself in the young people we serve. I saw myself in my ministry in terms of what my dad had told me many years before about following that path. And it's helped me to arrive to the point that I am today that I know that this is my ministry because every step that I've taken, every mentor that came into my life, every road and roadblock and barrier that's been put in front of me has helped me to get to the place that I am today. And for me, it's been because I'm standing on the shoulder of leaders, of giants, people that's influenced and inspired me become the person I am today and the person that I am in gratitude to serve and to serve the communities I serve and to serve this country in the best way that I can through my own pursuits and my own talents and the only access and ability that I can give and provide. Well, and you're making such a huge difference using those talents in something that really connects so deeply to your purpose. You talked about Ahmad Arbery. 
we look at other really grievous acts of social injustice that have happened in our country, have been happening for a long time, maybe more visibly. You know, you have been deeply affected by these things, as I have and many others have been as well. What do you take away from this in terms of when you think about your purpose and your mission and what advice do you have for others? It's certain experience that I know incredibly well. So many men and women of color who had to experience different forms of challenge, of issues based upon, you know, your race, based upon your background, having seen in my community firsthand, you know, these types of instances, it brings a lot emotionally into you. So I think first it's the emotional feeling of when you see something like that. For many people of color, the emotions run because you've seen it, you've experienced it, you've had family that's had the challenge. And so often that you feel at times that it gets buried or people don't really embrace it. What George Floyd did in so many different ways was brought it to the level of consciousness, right? That, you know, here was something that was caught on video that no one could deny, no one could believe first, but then no one could sit there and deny and for a lot of folks, it was this relief of even saying, this is what we've been talking about for years, the sense of letting it get out and being able to have the conversation about it. I wrote something after Ahmaud Arbery and, and George Floyd that I posted, and it was called The Talk. And it was about the conversation that I remember. I told you about the conversation that I had with my dad about my ministry, but one of the other earlier conversations I had was called The Talk. And it was this conversation about how I needed to act when I walked out of the house and if I got stopped by the police or if someone said something to me that I needed to act a certain way. And he said, it's going to be different for you. And I said, what does it mean being different for me? And that's when he really started to break down the idea of who I was and race. And again, I was, I'm this like eight, nine-year-old kid and we're having this really deep conversation. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just like blown away. And I have friends of all different backgrounds and experiences and I'm blown away that I'm having to talk about this, the most serious I've ever seen my dad talk about, and it was about saving my life, right? And to even think about that as an eight to nine-year-old sort of blew me away of having that experience, but it was important for me to have. And it taught me something because it taught me the sense of what it meant to grow up and, and the sense of having that conversation that it's important that people understand that these are the types of conversations that have in communities, and particularly for those who are also are or seeking to be allies, right? Because you got to understand these conversations. You got to understand engaging in a community, engaging in communities, and not that no one's asking anyone to be perfect. There's no perfect person. What I think is important for all of us is having a sense of listening, having a sense of wanting to have the conversation, having a sense of being open to engaging in these types of issues and areas in our country. And the reason why I shared the talk, because I, at the end of that blog, what I said, you know, the most important place we can all start with the conversation is at home. I know there's a lot that happens in public forums, a lot of things that happen. Yeah, I can do this. I can do this on my social media. Absolutely. Checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. So many times, the most important conversation for us to have is the conversation that we start at home, the ones with our kids, the ones with our families. And to have the courage, right? Because that's the hard conversation sometimes to have when you know your family may see it in a different perspective. 
but you got to have the courage to say, no, maybe I disagree with that. Or let's talk about this. We should have a conversation because I don't want people sometimes when they listen to this to feel like the obstacle's too high, right? Yes, we all should be doing things. We all should be advocates, but there's something that we all can do. And I've shared previously about the sense of how we can take actions in our communities, right? Because that's a civic engagement type of thing that we can take from a social justice standpoint. But we can also start in our homes. And those are with the simple conversations, simple yet powerful, that allow us to engage and to educate and to inform and to ensure that we have a forum where our kids and young people hear us talking about this in the sense of inclusion. And what does it mean to be inclusive? What does it mean to be tolerant? What does it mean to be an activist? What does it mean to be anti? What does it mean to be focused on the sense of making a better world and making a better world collectively together? So my answer to this is probably not as seismic, but I think ultimately it has the potential to be because I truly believe in the idea that these one simple actions can be actions that add up to be collectively and can truly change communities and ultimately change our country. Absolutely. And it's a great answer. And it really comes down to us individually and what we're willing to do and questions we're willing to ask, the conversations we're willing to have, like you said, with family, with friends, with people in the workplace and so forth. But everyone's got a responsibility in this discussion. And everyone's got, as you said, going back to integrity and purpose and path. I mean, one of the things that I know Dale Carnegie believed that we teach is that every single person has inherent greatness. Mm. Every single person has inherent greatness. I know you believe that because part Mm. of your mission in Big Brothers is inherent in every child is incredible potential. If we believe that, then how do we act on that? And that starts with ourselves. It starts with our families. It starts with people we work with. I want to go back to your dad, because I know that Mm -hmm. your father had such a profound influence on who you are today and who you were growing up. Talk about your dad a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Just an incredible guy, right? I mean, just from all the ways that you can think about it. My dad was a guy who had a fifth grade education, right? Was out on the street, I think at sixth grade. He always knew that it was a better life for him and a better life for his family. He started work at a young age. When he raised us, he raised us with this sense and the spirit of always work hard, right? Always have a focus of determination. Always treat people with a sense of respect and integrity and always hold yourself up to the highest level and the highest standard in what you do and be driven by your purpose and be driven by your faith. That had an influence on all of us. And he was a man who I felt in terms of guiding and life lessons. He also knew what his limitations were. He's like, I can't take you some places that other people can take you. But what I can do is I can introduce you to people who can. And that took a lot, right? A man who had a lot of pride to say, it was my limitations, but I'm going to open you up because I want you to be better than me. And I want you to have every opportunity in this world. So I have to make sure that I'm not looking at my own pride. I'm looking at where I'm vulnerable and where I may not be as strong. And that makes me stronger because I can realize it and bring other people into it to support and to help you. You know, my dad, who meant everything to me, my first week on the job passed away suddenly, unexpectedly. You know, when people ask me about how have you sort of carried on through this time with someone who had so much meaning in your life, you know, what I always go back to is I remember the conversation two days before my dad passed away that he had with me. And he told me, he said, if I passed away today, I would be the proudest father in the world because of what I've seen you have accomplished, what I've had experience and the type of person you've become. And for me, it gives me a sense 
of not closure, because you never have that, but it gives you a sense, particularly when you deal with grief, when you deal with any obstacle in your life, a sense of inspiration of knowing that you have that. And his legacy is carried through me. And he poured so much into me. I know that my responsibility is my dad always believed in paying it forward and putting your legacy forward. So I represent him. I honor him. And I think even as a leader, right, when you think about leadership, the best way to honor what someone has given to you and mentored you or provided you is to ensure that you're providing those same things to other people so that they can grow and expand and develop and cultivate their talents, just like someone helped to grow and cultivate you. Artists, first, I want to express sorrow for the loss of your father. I remember losing my father in 2017 mm-hmm. and remembering just how painful that was. You know, and in hearing you talk about your dad, it's funny, this show is about leadership. And a lot of times we talk about business leadership. Mm-hmm. It strikes me what a leader your father was. I mean, he exercised tremendous humility and really a servant's heart when he said to you at seven, because many fathers want their kids to go into what they're doing, right? And follow right. their footsteps. But he wanted you to follow your own purpose and your own you know, heart and so forth. And it just sounds like he really was a champion and he really was a leader and model leadership for you. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Even when you think about the idea and the concept of leadership, right? Even in business, I will tell you some of the most powerful ones that I've learned was guys who were on the street where I grew up, right? Not doing bad stuff, right? Doing good stuff. But I saw the way that they did things with their families, right? It was women, single moms, right? Who I had the opportunity to both engage with more personally, but also someone I had the opportunity to serve and support when I was working in public housing. And the way these single moms managed their household, the organization, the dedication, the focus, that they had, the resilience that they had. There's something about that that you can learn and you can take away from anyone in any experience in terms of developing who you are as a leader. And I want to go back to something I mentioned about my dad because I use it all the time now. And it took me time and I'm still growing in it. And it was vulnerability. I cannot say enough about the idea of vulnerability because we all come into this and particularly in the business world, we're taught it's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to open yourself up because if you do, it shows a sign of weakness or someone else is going to be seen as a certain edge sometimes. And sometimes being vulnerable enough to say, here's what I don't know. Here's what maybe I don't have the answers to, or I don't have the full roundness. And then the strength being recognizing it and trying to ensure that you're bringing others around you who can help support and grow you or support where you may not be able to bring the best. That's something that my dad taught me, even with that reading lesson, when he said, hey, I can't read the way that you're going to be able to read. So let me bring somebody in who can help you there. When is the time that you were able to model that vulnerability for people around you, either at Big Brothers or at 4-H or one of your other experiences? It was one of the first experiences that I had when I led a team. I thought that leading a team, that you give the orders, right? And it was the point of you were supposed to give the orders and you were supposed to be the smartest person in the room. Here's the thing, Joe. I quickly learned I was not the smartest person in the room by far. And it happened by failure, actually. It was a project that I was working on and we were supposed to win this big proposal, this big opportunity with a funder. And there were people in the room who understood not only the X's and O's of it, but the context the equity, because I was just coming in to the team, they had all the equity, 
But my perception was I was supposed to come in and I had to lead the team in this way. And then I had to drive the ship, if you will. We went and did this project and there were a lot of people trying to tell me things, but it was one of those points where I felt this obligation that I had to lead. And my idea of leadership at the time was I had to come up with the answers and the solution. Instead, the real opportunity was for me to truly cultivate that team, to truly come into what the right answer solution from driving the team. I didn't realize that. And I failed miserably. It was a learning lesson for me. And it was an opportunity for me to step back. And the thing I had to do was apologize. I had to own up to my mistake and say, you know what, this is all on me. This was me not listening. This was me not coming in and being the right type of leader that I know I am and the type of leader you need. And then the second thing was not just apologizing, but showing the action to say, I had to change course to make sure that we were going to be successful moving forward. And the vulnerability was my experience, right? My experience of why I felt I had to come in. I felt I had to come in because I felt that there were certain pressures on me that I had to act in this certain way, being a first-time leader at my age. And none of those things actually were true. It was things that I put in my mind. But when I opened myself up to truly listen to my team, they became more sympathetic and said, okay, now we understand. We didn't know where you were coming from. Now we understand. Let's work together now to help each other to be successful. And again, I think sometimes we all come in with our preconceived notions. I've learned through a lot of failure about making sure that you are valuing people's input, that you're valuing everyone at the table, that you're making sure there's an inclusive table. So this is not a story when you're talking to me of someone who's had a journey of all of it being perfect. And then here I am at this point because everything is well and I've achieved and accomplished A, B, and C to get to this point. It's more of a zigzag, meaning I've hit obstacles. I've taken three or four steps back. I've been knocked down a number of different times, but I've come back up. And just standing back up and walking the type of walk that I feel is one of integrity, one of treating people well, one of trying to do it together, and one of succeeding as a group and as a collective to achieve big goals on behalf of people, and and particularly on my mission, young people, is one that I feel really good about. That journey has been heartfelt and heart won because it's been on the right behalf of young people. That's certainly a phenomenal purpose. I want to talk to you about that, but I just want to go back for a second because I think you're right. A lot of people have this image of leaders and they've achieved something. They don't realize that they're the zigzags that you're talking about. I mean, they just think, oh, you know, artists is successful. People don't see all the things that you work through to get there. What I'm curious about is sometimes vulnerability. I mean, it's hard by definition. And many people, especially young leaders, will often think that they have to have the answers. They're afraid to let their vulnerability, their weaknesses show. It takes courage to do that. How did you get the courage or how do you get the courage when you face a fear or whatnot? Where do you get that confidence? And what advice do you have for people who may not yet have that, be able to find it? Yeah, and I'll speak just personally because I think in some ways it's different for everyone, but I think there's some commonalities that we find in life. That old saying, how do you jump into cold water, right? You put your toe in first, and then you put your leg in. You finally immerse yourself. In a lot of ways, for me, it's been trying things. And you can try things that will allow you to be vulnerable, but doesn't mean that you got to open up the entire book on day one, right? Maybe it's just the first page on day one. And what I've learned is that 
sometimes what you have to do is to receive, you have to give a little bit. A lot of us want to receive, right? We want to receive the accolades. We want to receive other people giving us insights and input. But to get some of that, you have to give it, meaning you have to open your book a little bit to allow people to come in and see things about yourself and particularly to come and see things that are not perfect about you. So let me just give you a clear-cut example. When I started this job, day one, when I first came on, I said I was going to do a 90-day listening and learning tour. So it was my opportunity to go around and to start to listening to people. And it was great, right? But what I found was that when I was going around, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I can't see people in person. So everything is virtual. Everything is Zoom. And I'm trying to connect with people. I'm trying to connect to say, I'm your new CEO. You don't know me from this person or the next. So how do you connect with me? How do you connect with me as a person? The only way that people were going to connect with me was that I needed to let them in. I had to tell them about who I was as a person. I had to tell them about who I was as a father. I had to tell them about who I was as a son. Now, a lot of people would say, hey, why are you mixing all that stuff in to the leadership journey? Shouldn't you just be talking about your professional life? Well, no, because for the people that I work with, everything's about relationship. These are people who day in, day out, they spend their lives connecting positive adults with young people. So if I'm truly going to connect with them on a meaningful level, I got to be vulnerable enough to talk about my story, to talk about my experiences, to talk about things that didn't go well for me, things that I've had challenges with in terms of learning as a young professional and growing in as a young professional and things even as a leader. I made a decision four weeks into my job that was an employment policy decision. And it was just an uproar because what I didn't realize was that there was so much equity, even though I didn't feel that the policy was the right one, there was so much equity built over the years in this certain policy. Now, probably what I could have done better in that instance would have been to say, well, let me take a little bit more time, you know, to study this. But, you know, this is going to be one of my quick wins as a leader, right? You come in, you're like, this is going to be a quick win. I'm going to change this employment policy. And this is going to be a quick win where I can check it off and I got it done. Well, that quick win really became a miserable moment. And then what did I have to do? I had to step back. I had to then go and talk to a group of my leaders and a group of my direct on the ground staff. And then I had to step back and I had to say, you know what? I got it wrong. I made a mistake. And I got all my employees together and I told them right on the call, I made a mistake and we're going to change it back. We're going to change it back to the policy that it needs to be. Now, I could have stayed stubborn, right? I could have just been like, man, I've shown a sign of weakness. If I turn back and change it so early up into my tenure as a new CEO, but I always remember what happened once I made that decision to reverse course. I got a host of emails in from employees to say, wow, for you to come in and to change course like that, you felt what we were saying to you, it made all the difference in the world, right? And that wasn't the reason that I made it. I made it because ultimately after I listened, I found out that it was the better course of action to take. So I had to make sure that I was doing something because I was informed and I was engaged to do it. And I was truly listening and engaging. And I had to show the vulnerability in myself to say, you know what, if you make a mistake, you can either be this guy who's going to stick with something and say, oh, well, this is the decision I made and I'm going to keep going with it. Or you can be the guy who says, you know what, I made a mistake. I got to acknowledge it. It's okay. 
And I got to let people know it's okay to make mistakes because if they don't see that it's okay for me to make mistakes, they won't feel like it's okay for them. You also modeled for them, hey, it's okay to make a mistake. And then here's how you own a mistake, right? Yeah. You know, there's a Dale Carnegie principle. If you make a mistake, admit it quickly and emphatically, people respect that. No one expects yeah. everyone's going to have all the answers, make every decision the right one every time. What strikes me is that it takes, certainly what you demonstrated was humility for your team. Your humility enabled you to model strong leadership for them and also to model how they could work with each other. And isn't that what we wish and hope for the world? I mean, even when you just think more globally, right? Isn't that what we wish for our kids, right? The same type of lessons that we talk about leadership, right? Isn't that what every household is trying to impart upon raising their families? I got two girls, my daughters, thinking about the idea of leadership and how we think about these types of principles. And even when we think about like Dale Carnegie and so much of what you all teach, I look at what you all teach. It's not simply the business community. What you talk about are principles that as a father, I can use. Me and my wife, we can use because it applies in the principles of people dynamics, engaging community and creating community. And for me, that's why it's like conversations like this are so important because the conversation has to expand, right? Because I think when the conversation expands to the sense of this is not simply about my career, but it's about me as a person developing, because if I develop as a person, my professional leadership and all the other avenues and facets of my life are going to grow and excel because I fully develop as a person. And then that is then actualized into reality in so many different facets of my life. So often people tend to compartmentalize and say that I've got my business self, my husband self, my mm -hmm. father, whatever. it's all connected. And certainly what you said about Dale Carnegie, I know I'm a better father, better husband, better person as a result of these kinds of principles. And I can see that's exactly what you are as well. How would you define leadership artists? If you were to put it in a sentence or two, what does leadership mean to you? I always go back to following your purpose and your path with integrity, right? That for me is at the center of it. Typically, I think sometimes the connotation of leadership has to do with your leading people. It always has a concept of, hey, here's me and then here's people. And then people have to follow me, right? For me to be a leader. I've never saw it that way, right? And again, I think it goes back to a lot of leaders that I saw that that wasn't really the definition. What I always saw was people that were committed to following their path. That what I always saw was people that did it with a sense of integrity, right? It was integrity to self. It was integrity to their community. It was integrity to the family and those that are around them. It was integrity to a bigger idea, a bigger concept, a bigger calling. That to me, I feel like is what grows, develops, inspires people along this path and along this journey to truly get to this well-defined leader. I'm sure there's so much wrapped into it. And there's probably smarter folks than I am that have much more well-crafted definitions than I do. But at the core of it, for me, I feel like if I'm following my path, if I'm following my purpose, and I'm doing it with a great level of integrity to those things that I mentioned, that I feel like I'm doing a sufficient job as a leader. Well, that's ultimately what we look for from leaders. I mean, we want to see people with integrity. We want to see people with conviction, with purpose. You are leading a phenomenal organization, speaking of purpose, an organization that's been around since 1904, has helped countless young boys and girls around the United States. Talk a little bit about the role of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and how that connects to your purpose and your passion and your integrity. So 
I mean, think about this organization. 117-year organization was born in the beginning of the 20th century and was born as an alternative innovation to the juvenile justice system. That this wasn't an organization that was just simply born to say, hey, we want to serve kids and we want all kids to be engaged and be happy. Absolutely want that, right? But what's really crucial to understand that, because it really talks about what the organization is today, is that our mandate at the time was serving the kids who were most marginalized, the kids who were most vulnerable, right? They were the kids who were coming over in the country who were immigrants. They were the kids who were homeless on the street. We talk about our kids that they were mainly in street gangs and crime. Those were the kids who we were trying to serve. And it was this idea to say, instead of kids going through the juvenile justice system, what if we did something that were truly innovative for the time? We came up with this concept to say, what if we match them with positive adults to build these incredible relationships that help to bring every kid into the circle of opportunity? So we call ourselves a JEDI-focused youth empowerment organization. That JEDI stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. The reason why we use that is not to respond to the issues of the day, but it's because our DNA was born from it. We were born from justice to create more equity for every kid that we serve bringing together diverse communities. Our founding was based upon religious organizations, Rotary Clubs, Elks Clubs, pretty much every nationality that you can think of coming together that helped scale and grow our cause over a century. And it was all for one singular purpose, so that every kid could feel included to opportunity and a better life. So you fast forward a hundred years, and what do you see today? The kids we serve, 71%, are from communities of color, 60% single family household, 55% live in poverty, 25% has a parent incarcerated or in the parole system. Now, in no way, Joe, does those numbers define who they are. In most cases, it makes them even more resilient. But we do know what defines them in so many different cases. It's access to opportunity. It's access to connection. It's access to having the types of positive relationships that helps to change and transform their lives because they're empowered to do so. We don't believe in saving kids. We think kids can save themselves, but they need the empowerment. They need the platform to have the opportunity. So we're now the largest mentoring organization in the country. We are the largest operator of career-based mentoring programs that go into workplaces and build connections for employees to come in. We also know that being in an organization that is embedded in communities all across this country, thousands of communities, every single state. We also know things about the kids that we serve that are still the challenge. We got 30,000 kids right now who are on our waiting list. And most of those kids on our waiting list are boys, waiting for mentors, waiting for connections. We also know that when we look at the things that are going on across the country, that every third child in this country don't have a sustained positive mentor in their life, right? Those are challenges that we face, but we also know that just like education being an access to opportunity and connection, we got to make sure that we add to that nexus. That is certainly education, but it's also the important role of mentorship that allows for education to be a few that truly helps to transform and to elevate young people to a way of being able to have access and opportunity. There cannot be an equation in our country that mentorship doesn't show up. It's unfortunate what I hear you saying is there aren't enough mentors. You're short. You've got more kids than you have mentors. So what does it take to be a mentor? And if any of our listeners want to be mentors, what should they do? The thing I love about our model 
is this access, right? We effectively call our adult volunteers bigs, and the young people that are matched with our bigs, we call them littles, right? So the big and the little uh, relationship. And what's so special about these relationships is that it doesn't take much, right? I always tell people you don't have to be perfect, because I think sometimes one of the obstacles of mentoring is that you think you got to be perfect to come into a young person's life. You don't have to be perfect at all. You just have to have intent, interest, and desire to want to make a difference in a young person's life. So what it takes is a little commitment, time commitment. Most of our mentors, you're talking about two times a month. They go through a background check because we believe in safety for every young person that we serve. The reason why a lot of volunteers who get into our program, they're smiling once they get in because what they find is that, one, the young people are teaching them more than what they're teaching the young person because most of our mentors say they get more out of it than they give to the young people that they're mentoring. Now, we don't ask you to commit to years, but you just want to commit to it. We have so many, what we call wedding stories. And the wedding story is a mentor starts with a kid, maybe when they're like nine years old or maybe 11 years old. They stick so long together, Joe, that the big actually ends up in our little wedding when they get married. And they either become a maid of honor or best man or some part of the party of the wedding. Because that's just how powerful the connection is that they have. We have people who help to coach you and support you. So you're never alone. You connect and we have the parent is always engaged and connected as well. So it's not just this relationship. You come in and you're not knowing who the family is. You don't have the staff support that helps you. We help try to provide curriculum and tips and ways that you can engage and get involved. And last thing is that we try to make it fun, right? At the very end of the day, we want our kids to grow, we want to develop, but we try to make it fun because at the very end of the day, you want to have a fun relationship that you can build and continue a relationship. And for people who want to get involved, right, it's very easy. You know, they go to bbbs.org and you can easily put in your zip code and you can find a local Big Brothers, Big Sisters that's nearest you and get engaged. And for some reason, if you're not able to give your time, you can always support a match, right? We have a number of people who invest and give financially the support a match between a volunteer and a young person. And the last thing I would say is the story has to continue to be told, right? We need people who, if you believe in mentoring, if you believe in championing the goal and the role of young people succeeding in this world, you can always advocate. And even if it's not big brothers, big sisters, advocate for a young person in your community, advocate for a young person in your life. Each and every one of us can do that because that's an important aspect to ensuring that our entire community grows and our entire country grows as well. And each of us have a responsibility around that. We yeah. think someone else is going to do that's our job individually as people and as citizens to try to help be there for other people and bring other people up. I'll tell you that, as I mentioned, when I got to be a big brother and I was just in my young 20s as a college student, it was a hugely fulfilling thing to get to know the young man. It really as you were talking about time commitment, we would do things, go to the movies or whatever it was, different kinds of things. But it was nice to be able to spend time with him and to mentor him. And frankly, like you said, you give and you get back. And sometimes it's ironic in life. You can't give more than you get back. You always get back mm. more, whether it's joy or satisfaction or fulfillment mm. or whatnot. I can't say enough good things about your organization. Artists, what closing uh, advice might you have for our listeners or closing thoughts would you have? You know, one of the big ones is getting involved. I love what you just articulated, Joe, just in terms of the exchange, right? And what you get back. I think that is powerful. You know, what I will also say is that we're in a country that's continuing to evolve. 
and continuing the change. And I had mentioned before that at the root of all of our relationships is friendship. But we also know that kids have certain needs in our country. And what we're seeing is we have traditionally served five to 18 year olds, right? That's been our traditionally service population. But Joe, let me tell you the fastest growing population that we're serving today, 18 to 25. A lot of people don't know that we are serving 18 to 25 year old young people. And why is that? Because kids are graduating high school and they're still wondering about what do I do next? They don't know what the next step is. They don't know what the next journey is for them or where they can go and what types of skills. So the idea of upskilling, the idea of developing the right type of leadership components in their lives, it is critically important in today's time. And it's important absolutely for the young person and the young person becoming much more prepared, much more socially aware, much more competent to be able to fill jobs and careers and opportunities. It's important for our communities because most of our communities are anchored to these young people being able to develop and then come back and then to grow these communities. And it's important for our companies and corporations who are out there trying to do a few things, right? One, to continue to build their pipelines for the right type of professionals and growing these types of professionals with the types of skills. It's important for their employees who want to give back and who want to connect in their communities and trying to find a tangible way to do it and to do it right. And I think even morally, as we think about equity in this country, as we think about justice in this country, there's a lot of ways you can affect change. But one of the most powerful ones that you can do it on a personal level is the simple fact of how you connect in a young person's life and you provide mentorship. So if there is a way that your listeners will think and say, what can we do to make a difference, whether that's individually or if I'm with a company, a group, and I want to find a significant way on a large scale, come and talk to Big Brothers Big Sisters, because it's through this opportunity, through mentorship, that I think we can change communities, we can change our country, and ultimately we can change the world because we change young people's lives, and they have the power to do that. So I welcome your listeners to certainly come and check us out, and we're happy to have a conversation with them. Awesome. You know, artists, it's something we say in Dale Carnegie is let's throw down a challenge. So I think we could throw down a challenge for anyone who's listening to this. If you really want to make a difference, if you want to make a difference in someone's life, you really want to find fulfillment in helping someone else, check out Big Brothers Big Sisters. So thank you, artists. I really appreciate your authentic, high integrity answer to sharing who you are with that. So thank you so much. My pleasure, my friend, and thank you again for having me. It's been great having the chance to just engage and talk a little bit about these important issues. And thanks, Dale Carnegie, I've always loved in terms of leadership lessons. I see it continues to grow and continues to go on. So appreciate you, Joe. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.